All right. Well, again, good morning, everyone. We are in the book of Colossians. We're going to be in chapter one today. We are just going to try to get through the first dozen verses, and then, Lord willing, next week we'll get through the the second half or two-thirds of the first chapter, and then we'll do one chapter a week, Lord willing, through the end of Colossians. And then that'll take us through almost the very end of the quarter. However, there'll be about two to three weeks that will be remaining, and we will spend two and a half weeks on Philemon, as well as maybe doing a little bit of review. So when we deal with the book of Colossians, uh, let's just start with what we know about Colossians. What are some facts or some taglines, some ways of very quickly summarizing Colossians based on what you know already? And you can just share those. Uh, yes, Brother David. Say that uh, Christ is all you need. Christ is all you need. In fact, I'll go ahead and uh, to our introduction to Colossians, and I promise that David and I did not script this, but the letter is very Christ-focused. Uh, it is probably, it's been nicknamed the most Christ-centered epistle, the one that is all about Jesus as the Christ. By the way, what does the word Christ mean? What does that term mean, uh, literally? Anointed, right? So the idea of the anointed one is, so if you were to read a direct Greek to English version of the Bible, rather than the word Christ or Jesus or even Messiah, is the word the anointed. And it's really interesting to read it because grammatically it doesn't make sense to us sometimes where it talks about the anointed was or the anointed whatever. But that's exactly what it means here. So it is a letter that is very focused on Jesus Christ. Thank you, David. Other things that we know about Colossians, major themes, uh, major concepts. Yeah, David? Christ as the head of the church. Christ as the head of the church. Uh, David and I were just discussing this a few moments ago. One of the ways to study the book of Colossians is to line it up next to the book of Ephesians, which is a little bit longer, but there are some striking similarities between the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians. We're not studying the book of Ephesians in this quarter. Uh, we're studying Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, prison letters. But in the uh, practical letter, especially chapter 4, for example, or chapter 5, for example, of Ephesians, we see a lot of that then kind of uh, amplified or dealt with in his letter to the church at Colossae. So very, very good. Okay. So um, this is a book that does address false teaching to a degree, probably not so much of uh, the false teaching in your face as First John, for example, uh, or Galatians, maybe, for example. But the idea is, is that it seems as if Paul is addressing false teaching in some different possible ways. And I came up with three different audiences, one being the Judaizing teachers. Uh, and it's, it's perhaps likely that he was dealing with that party, that group of people. Some have suggested he's talking to some of the Gnostic followers and Brother Bruce, as you may recall, about a year and a half ago, did a, a very good job of taking us through 1 John 
and talking about Gnosticism and about the idea of what that belief was about. And then some have just suggested that the Gentile influences have really kind of filtered in or integrated the church at Colossae. No matter what the target audience is or what the real issue was, the fact is, is every church has to guard itself against false teachers who would teach something contrary to the doctrine which is taught by Jesus and taught by the holy apostles. Um, the other thing is virtually every city that Paul writes to, whether it be Philippi, whether it be Ephesus, or whether it be Colossae, can be described as typically major cities. Uh, I came across someone who described it as one of the most important meeting places among the east and the west of the world in the early mid, or the, uh, the late mid, I guess, first century. Some have suggested somewhere around 62. Some have suggested uh, somewhere around 61 uh, for the book of Colossians. Um, anything else on our introduction before we actually get... Well, there's a lot we could say about the, uh, Miss Diana over here. There's a lot we could say about Colossians by way of introduction. We could spend an entire period just introducing it. But I want us to get into the text here. But we'll turn it over to Miss Diana for just a moment. I was going to say that what's interesting about it is looking at history and how important it was then... Today, it's only a tell, which is a heap of dirt. There's nothing, there's nothing left except chards around the, the heap of dirt that was once Colossae. So that shows how important we are right. in, the, in the grand scheme of things. Absolutely. It shows that, and it shows the importance of maintaining ourselves spiritually, because at some point, somewhere, Christians at you would conclude Christians at Colossae maybe did not do the work that they were supposed to be doing. And we have to make sure that there's always the faith present here so that 100 years from now, 200 years from now, or 1,000 years from now, if the world still exists, that there's still a strong church here. And that's what we want to make sure, that's what we, that's what we desire. But it is right to point out that we're not that important, are we? Okay. Let's look at chapter 1, and I want to just look at the introductory verses. I mentioned this, I think, two weeks ago, that sometimes we err by looking at the introduction and looking at the concluding verses and thinking that that is kind of superfluous, that it's unimportant text. But I want to actually spend uh, three to five minutes just looking at the introduction. Paul, comma an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brothers, the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So um, we don't typically talk about this when we study the books of Philippians or Colossians uh, or Philemon. The only time we really talk about this is when we talk about, for example, the letter to the Hebrews. But there's near universal agreement that Paul is the author. We know that he is one of the, the 14 apostles. And he calls himself to be an apostle here, whereas in his letter to the church at Philippi, he does not reference himself as an apostle. There may be uh, some evidence that there were some of the issues found in 2 Corinthians 11 that we recently talked about where Paul had to defend his 
apostleship. Maybe he's having to do that a little bit more here than he would to the church at Philippi. But for whatever reason, he calls himself an apostle. It's a very standard Pauline introduction. He says, to the saints, going back to, was it last Sunday morning? Sometimes, you ever, you ever, for those of us that preach and those of us that listen to sermons, sometimes they blend together and sometimes you forget what week was, was what, right? But you remember certain things. But David talked about sanctification uh, recently. And the idea of sanctification is being a saint. So he writes to the saints. What does it mean to be a saint? And he, talk, and he actually talked about um, that it's more than, it, it's not the idea of going through a process of canonization over the course of hundreds or thousands of years. Literally, it means to be holy, to be different. We oftentimes use the word sanctification to be set apart, to be different from the world. Anything else on what it means to be a saint besides those four things? David? going to say the word saint means holy one, holy one of God, so someone who is set apart for that purpose. Yes. Very good. For, and I like the, the, that very last word that David used, the idea of a purpose. I still remember uh, 25 years ago, I was in a discussion with someone uh, over someone who had, <laughs> maybe I didn't approach it the right way. I was a little bit less mature than I am now. I'm not sure I'm mature yet. Uh, <laughs> But I certainly wasn't at the age of 17, 18, 19, whatever I was. Uh, now, our 18, 19, 20-year-olds are very mature. But, so there's the caveat. I don't want to. But I wasn't. But I remember saying that, uh, that you know, I'm a saint. And in response to a conversation about sainthood from, uh, that came from Rome and canonization over 600 years and going through the process or whatever. And someone was like... What are you talking about? And I said, and I pointed him to passages like this. I said, well, look at Colossians 1. I said, to the saints. I said, I'm a, I'm a saint. And uh, the passages that talk about us. Nothing wrong with us referring to ourselves as saints, not in a, uh, a way of saying, well, look at me. Look at how imperfect I am. Because we understand that's not what a saint is. A saint is a person who is holy, who is trying to do what the Lord has asked him or her to do. But it does literally mean a separation to God, as we talked about. And then he says, and to the faithful brethren in his introduction. And the faithful brethren. And I thought about that. I was thinking about that this week. I was thinking about that particular phrase, to the faithful brethren. So there's an adjective and there's a noun, right? The adjective is faithful. The noun is brethren. And then anytime you have an adjective like that, the opposite. Unfaithful, right? So that tells me that it's possible to be a brother and to be unfaithful, right? So we all have brothers and sisters, spiritually speaking, who are unfaithful. Uh, we pray for them. We uh, are concerned about them. We reach out to them. Um, just this last week, I reached out to uh, a brother who is in error. As I'm sure many of you, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to come across and say, look at what I, I'm just saying as, as, as an example of saying, you know, if there's something I can do to help you, I want to help you because there's nothing more important than helping someone spiritually. That's the most important thing that we can do for someone. And uh, we, I think, as a congregation, do a, a pretty decent job of when we publicly pray, 
We pray for those who are physically sick, and that's right. There's, there's biblical principle for doing so. But we also almost always follow that up by saying, and we're praying for those who are spiritually ill, those who have walked away. We are concerned about them because um, they are unfaithful brethren. And then the last thing he says here is in his introduction is grace and peace be unto you. And I thought, well, that's interesting. What does that literally mean? It literally means favor. Grace is the idea of favor and, and the concept of peace, literally favor and peace. Anything else by way of introduction before we get into some of the more uh, heart of the conversation that Paul... All right, let's go ahead then to verse 3. And uh, at some point before the sermon, David, um, I have a screen here that's blue and it says no signal. So I have to look up here to see what it says. So uh, don't worry about it right now, but at some point we'll figure out what's going on here. Uh, I probably broke it. <laughs> genius. I don't know. He'd been gone for what, eight weeks? How in the world did we survive for eight weeks? All right, I see it now. All right, very good. Okay, thank you. Appreciate that. Welcome back. Okay, uh, let's go ahead to the text here. Verse three, we give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. Beautiful phrase there. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So we're going to pause there and just focus in on those verses. Uh, what's the first thing that Paul says in his letter? After his introduction, which is important, but what's the first thing he says in verse 3? We give thanks. So the, the, most in, the, the first thing out of his mouth after he gets through who I'm writing to, grace and peace be to you, is the importance of thankfulness and the importance of being appreciative of God and of one another. Speaking of that, I, I, I wanted to point that out. We need to be thankful to God and we need to be thankful to others. So this first lesson is kind of rich with application. We'll, we have four or five key application points that I want to make at the conclusion, but there's a couple of applications that we'll make throughout our study. But this is one of those first ones that jumped out to me, is the importance of being thankful to God and being thankful to others. Then he uses this phrase here in verse 4. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus... That was interesting. We've heard of your faith. Uh, we heard of your faith. Is it possible for others to hear uh, of our faith as well? Of course. They, they may hear of it. They may see it. They may witness it. Uh, word spreads. Uh, so will others hear of our faith is kind of a real quick 
application, kind of a pointed question. We want, as individuals, for people to know that we are men and women of the faith, and we want for us as a congregation to be men and women of the faith that others hear of it as well. So when someone hears of Northfield, they say, those are people of the faith. That's the reputation that we have, among other things. The other thing, is, the, other, the second question is, should we commend each other for faith? And it, again, it's an obvious yes. Um, I have, I'm reminded of a brother in Christ uh, who is in a different state. And one of his favorite phrases is not just so much that I love you, but he says, I love your soul and I love your faith. And I think that maybe we can do a, a good job of one another, of commending each other for our faith. And so not just saying I appreciate you, but I appreciate your faith. And because that's what binds us together is our faith in Christ Jesus. And then the last phrase he uses here. Uh, in this kind of introductory section to this first paragraph is we have heard of your love for the saints. And that reminded me of the fact that reputations matter. So will, would people know that we have faith in Christ and would people know that we love one another and that we show that love to one another by the way that our reputation precedes us? And, that, and hopefully that would be the case. Hopefully people, when they hear about Northfield, they, they say, yeah, these are people that are faithful and these are people that love each other very, very much. And they're willing to sacrifice for one another, to do good things for one another. Our reputations matter. All right? Anything else uh, on verses 4 and 5 before we kind of move on here in just a second? All right. Let's go ahead and progress. Um, oh, actually, I wanted to talk about verse 5 because verse 5, I was saying it's verse 6, but verse 5 says, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Our hope is sometimes not realized in this life. We are sometimes, oftentimes, so focused on heaven that we are willing to go through different challenges in this life. We know that our citizenship is in heaven, as we talked two weeks ago in Philippians chapter 3. We know from our studies of 1 Peter, among other places, that suffering is a key part of being a Christian. Um, but I, that phrase there in verse 5, because of the hope that is laid up in heaven, that word hope, uh, is used more in the New Testament than it is in the Old Testament. It is used about a half a dozen times in the letter to the church at Colossae. In the New King James Version, I count 68 references to hope. Um, and that's quite a bit in 27 books, some of which are very, very short. The idea of hope being so important. The other thing that I had, I had, and I feel kind of ashamed about this, but we're trying to learn, right? I had never picked up on this until reading through this just a few days ago. Uh, and, you know, we've all read Colossians 1 dozens of times, if not hundreds of times. But he uses these three, this triad together. Uh, 
faith, love, and hope. Now, when you think about faith, love, and hope, your mind, my mind, goes to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. The greatest of these is love. But here he uses these three terms again, this kind of tripod of faith, love, and hope. He uses them again. We have heard of your faith. We have heard of your love because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. I thought that was kind of interesting. That's a very uh, Paul-esque kind of statement to use those three words together, faith, love, and hope together. One of the things, even though we're not getting into the last few verses of chapter 1, is the fact that that hope is dependent. One of the, in, in my estimation, uh, good ways of studying chapter 1 is looking at verse 5 and then looking at verse 23. Of course, you look at everything in between. But verse 5 talks about the hope that is laid up. If you skip down to verse 23, it says, if indeed you continue in faith. Now, there's a lot of material in between, which is the, the, the scope of our study this week and next week. But the point that I'm making is this, that hope that we have in heaven is something that is dependent on if we continue in the faith and continue doing what God has asked us to do. So I can't say, well, I'm a Christian. I've been baptized for the forgiveness of my sins, or as some would suggest in the world, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, which is a non-biblical concept of, of being saved without baptism. And um, therefore, I have hope, and there's nothing that I can do to lose that hope. Well, that's obviously not true. The New Testament is written to Christians about the importance of faithful living and not generally to people of the world who have yet to accept Jesus in baptism. So it's important for us to remember that verse 23 is being reconciled to Christ is, de is dependent on our faithful living for him. So I just wanted to point that out. We'll talk about verse 23 a little bit next week, Lord willing. The other thing in, in talking about verse 23 that I thought was of interest is the concept of the gospel's success, its spread in verse 6. It has also into all the world is the phrase in the New King James Version. In verse 23, it says, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. So to me, there should be a line drawn between verse 6 and verse 23 because those are very similar kinds of statements and concepts that Paul is addressing here. And then the last thing here in verse, I guess it's verse 5 and 6, is this concept of bringing forth fruit. This is a, a much more agrarian society than what we deal with today in the United States, and especially in a, a suburban, almost urban uh, area in which we now live, and that is fruit bearing. The idea of bearing fruit would have been familiar to them. That's growth in terms of the numbers of the saints as well as the personal growth of saints. So we are trying to grow in a number of ways. We want more Christians because that's a great thing, but we want the Christians that we have to be growing individually in service to God not just being stagnant in the way that we conduct ourselves. 
Anything else on the first six verses? Uh, Brother Kerry over here uh, to your left, uh, David. And then we'll proceed to verse 7 and 8. Um, I just thought it was interesting in verse 5. Uh, in the New American Standard, it says, Heard in the word of truth, comma, the gospel. And I thought it was an interesting, uh, I, I guess what popped in my head was, the gospel is the word of truth. And so if we want truth, we have to focus on the gospel and not on something that man wrote or man's interpretation, but focus on the, the gospel truth. Excellent. Thank you. Very good. Anything else? All right, let's talk about verses 7 and 8, and, and then we'll conclude with uh, 9 through 12 and some brief applications. Um, let's talk about Epaphras. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 7, he makes an appearance in chapter 4, verse 12, makes an appearance in verse 13, makes an appearance in Philemon, uh, verse 23 as well. Do we know much about Epaphras? Or what do we know about him? Uh, some have suggested, uh, let's, I'm going to go ahead and put those up here, three things about him that, that I pointed out here. I'll put them all up there. One is commending brethren is good. We'll come back and talk about that here in just a second. Two, being commended as a brother is good. And then three, some assume that he may have been instrumental in beginning this particular church. That's the last phrase up on the screen there. So, so Miss Janie mentioned that. Some have suggested that. Uh, some have suggested that he was a prisoner. We don't know exactly his full background. We aren't given a biography of him. Either way, we do know that he was very important to Paul uh, and apparently was getting information and giving information from Rome to Rome, somehow from Colossae. Um, some have suggested that Epaphras is another name for Epaphroditus. Whether he is or not, I don't know. Uh, their names are similar, and just as we might do Timothy and Tim, Epaphras and Epaphroditus, some have suggested that they are one and the same. The other thing is we know that there are people who have similar names in the Bible. Uh, how many? There's either five or six James in the New Testament, depending on how you count them. There's a number of Simons. There's uh, a couple of different Judases. So that lends itself to a little bit of confusion as well. I want to go back to the first two points that uh, I made. Commending brethren is good, and being commended as a brother is good. So encouraging one another is an important work of us as Christians. Uh, it's important for us to correct one another, certainly. But it's also important and vital for us to build up one another and to commend one another and to say, I appreciate the work that you're doing. Now, sometimes the work is so quiet and the work is so behind the scenes that we don't know about it. But when we do find out, maybe it's worth saying to that brother or to that sister, whether that be in person or whether that be in text or whether that be in a card, I appreciate the work that you're doing it means a lot. I appreciate your faith going back to verse 5, commending them for their faith. Uh, going back to what Carrie said, 
commending them for their dedication to the word of the truth, comma, the gospel in the New American Standard. All right. And uh, the last thing here is verse 8, where it says, Who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. In the English Standard Version, it says, Made known to us your love. So if someone were to bring a message back to you, let's say that you are a thousand miles away, uh, hopefully not in prison, but that may, it may come to that if, if preaching the truth and standing for the truth is made illegal. Uh, but for whatever reason, you're separated from the brethren at Northfield. We want it so that declared to you is the love in the spirit that we have. That that message resonates and is uh, something that is consistent. Thoughts on the first eight verses? Brother, uh, thought, thought I saw someone, maybe not. Anything else on the first eight verses before we spend? Uh, Brother John. Yeah, I think it's verse four. It said, Paul said, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, that would imply that Paul was not the one that's founded the church there. He, he would have known of it firsthand. He would have known of it from the outset. But he had to hear of it. Uh, verse, what is it? Uh, it says that, uh, oh, verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras. So it would seem to be saying that Epaphras was the one that taught them the gospel. That's where they learned it. You know, Paul was in Ephesus three years. And Colossae is not that far away, so it could be that Epaphras obeyed the gospel of us and went back home to Colossae. So. That, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Very good. Okay, let's go ahead. Uh, we've got about 11 minutes left here. I want to spend just a few moments on uh, these four verses, verses 9. Um, oh, I, I put up there on the bottom left. Some called this section, Faith in Christ. And some call this section here the idea of Christ as the preeminent master for this particular section. All right, he says, we do not cease to pray for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 uh, says that we are to pray without ceasing. Uh, he says, we do not cease to pray for you. So praying for others is good. Um, we understand that. And you already know where I'm going with this because I mentioned it in my study to, uh, in the Philippians, in the Philippian letter. And that is communicating to others that we're praying for others is good too. Um, and doing that by text, doing that in a card, doing that in person, whatever the case may be. Because people are encouraged when they are being prayed for, being prayed about. And that's one of the ways that we can go about building up one another and commending one another. This uh, has been described as a prayer uh, because Paul is actually saying that these are the kinds of things that I pray. And it tells, when I look at these verses here, let's go ahead and read those verses. But it's a prayer from Paul that includes four basic things. There's a lot of passages, Old Testament and New Testament, that kind of give us the framework or the skeleton for what prayer should be or what prayer should involve. So it says, For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will 
in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all the patience, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So depending on the version you're reading from, you may have semicolons. The semicolons really, to me, in the New King James Version, what I'm reading from, really kind of help separate those segments out into four major categories. Number one, Paul says, I am praying that you are filled with all knowledge. You're filled with all knowledge. Um, So when you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ... At some point, you should say, I want my brother or my sister or my brethren in general to be filled with knowledge because knowing is important. Now, praying that isn't enough. They have to be the ones to go and open the Bible to study on their own with their families, with their friends in in situations like this. But we want to pray that Biblical knowledge increases on a daily basis. Secondly, he prays, I want you to, so you find the first semicolon and then follow from there, walk worthy of the Lord. That tells me it's possible to walk in an unworthy way. Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 says, let your walk be worthy of the conduct of Jesus Christ or let your conduct be worthy of Jesus Christ. Um, that tells me it's possible to walk in an unworthy way. So we can be walking, but it be unworthy. Uh, we can be acting, but it be inappropriate. The third thing he says there uh, in verse 11, is he says, I want you strengthened with all might according to his power. So we want brethren to be strong. And then the fourth thing he says there in verse 12 He says, I'm going to pray and give thanks who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in his light. And that kind of reminds me of Philippians 1 verse 27 as well. So I didn't take the time to do this, but you could say, uh, you could boil this down and say, be knowledgeable, be worthy, be strong, be thankful. And just make those four things, four B's. That you, that you do, four things that we pray. So I'm going to pray for one another that you know stuff, that you are worthy, that you are strong, and that you are thankful. And I'm going to do those things as well. Brother Kerry over here, uh, David, those are the things I'm going to pray and the things that I wish that you would be prayerful about as well. Brother Kerry. I'll add two other things. Because without knowledge and wisdom and understanding, our knowledge is futile. Very good. So you've got to have the wisdom and the understanding to support that knowledge. Absolutely. Right. And if anyone lacks wisdom, what should he do? Ask of the Lord. Ask of God. Right? Very good. Thank you, Carrie, for bringing that up. Um, and the, the, Yeah, Brother David? I had a comment about uh, the worthiness. I used to think okay, I could never be worthy, but that's not a true statement. I can't be a worthy sacrifice. But I can be worthy through Christ's sacrifice. And we're told here that we must be worthy. And that starts with fully pleasing him. And then there's a list of things right after that of how we can be pleasing to him. Absolutely. 
Excellent. The last thing before we get to the applications here in our final three minutes here, four minutes, is the, that word partakers there in verse 12. I like the idea we are partaking of something. We are, it's the fellowship that we enjoy that we talked about to the church at Philippi. Uh, we are partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. What a beautiful concept that we are uh, a part of. Okay, there are lots of applications. Oh, some have called this the section of preeminence of the Christ. There are lots of applications for today that we can make. But let me just suggest four. We've kind of already highlighted, but I want us to kind of walk away with, and I want this to be the last thing we think about as we, as we break and pause for the day. First, go back to the introduction where we sometimes kind of just skip over and remember that we are saints and we must act accordingly. We call ourselves Christians. We call ourselves brethren. We call ourselves disciples. We, there's lots of names. In fact, I've, I've got a sermon called Names by Which We're Called. And I just go through and talk about all those different names and their significance. And one of those is the idea of saints. But I think that sometimes we are reluctant to call ourselves saints in part because of maybe what David just pointed out, that I can't be a worthy sacrifice, but Christ is my worthy sacrifice for me. So I don't want to call myself a saint. Well, I am a saint, and you are a saint. And we are saints together because we are partakers of the inheritance of the saints, there it is again, in the light. But we have to act accordingly. So we have to always be on guard because the world will find the one opportunity where we goof up and they'll say, look, that's not really what a saint is about. So we have to be consistent in our examples as much as possible. Number two, we need to pray for others while communicating our prayerfulness to them. That's what Paul does to the church at Philippi. That's what he does to the church at Colossae. Virtually every one of Paul's letters includes, I pray for you, and I want you to know that I pray for you. So we need to make sure that we do that. Thirdly, uh, reputations matter, uh, and we need to work to keep them pure. After all, he says, we've heard of your love, we've heard of your faith, we've heard of your hope. Uh, those are things that we keep hearing about you. We want people to have a, a good, rep, we want to have a good reputation for others as well. And then finally, prayer for others should grow to be specific. Uh, nothing wrong with quick, generic arrow prayers uh, where we only have five seconds. But when we have that time to be very specific in prayer, let's be specific. Include those four or five or six things that we talked about today. Anything else in our final 60 seconds? Uh, Brother John and Brother David. Verse 12, reading the New American Standard, says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. He qualified us to be able to share it. How did he do that? Next week, verses 13 and 14 tells yep. us how he did that. By delivering us, right? Very good. I like the, I like the word qualified. Brother David? I was just going to say there's a difference between preeminence and prominence. I think sometimes we're guilty. I know I've been guilty of giving Christ prominence in my life, but not preeminence. Let's ponder that for the next week. Very good. Thank you. All right. We'll break there. Thank you all.